Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 12 through 21 today, this evening. As Paul was reaching for the prize. In the first 11 verses of chapter 3, Paul was describing the spiritual mind. And in verses 8 through 11, he wrote, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. He said, I want to suffer with him. I want to share in his death. So that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. From there, let's begin with the first part of verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. He wanted to know Christ. He wanted to experience the mighty power of Christ, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead. He wanted to suffer with him. He wanted to share in his death so that one way or another he would experience the resurrection from the dead. He wanted to be that spiritual man. Now, when Paul wrote this, think about what he had done up to the time that he had said these words. You know, right after he got saved, within a few weeks, he had made such an impact on Damascus. And he had already stirred up such great opposition that he had to leave the city. He was forced to leave the city. While waiting for God to call him to his work, what God had called for him to do, Paul had spread the gospel in Arabia and Tarsus and Cilicia. And then Barnabas urged him to go to Syria and Antioch. And Paul went there and he made a tremendous impact on that wicked city. Then Paul evangelized the island of Cyprus, where he founded a whole bunch of churches in Galatia and Antioch and Pisidia and, and, and many others. He defended Christian freedom, the right of Christian liberty. He helped the elders there at Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, to understand that the Gentiles, they didn't have to become a Jew. They didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to go all the through the rituals to become Christians. Man, and that was a huge achievement that really set the church uh, free from the bondage of Judaism. Paul founded the work in Europe where he planted, again, many churches in Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, and Corinth. He made a tremendous, as you know, speech on Mars Hill uh, in front of the intellectuals there. He had reached Ephesus with the gospel. He had evangelized Ephesus and he left a church there that also reached out and planted other churches in Asia Minor. Then after years of traveling and years of Paul's preaching and teaching and exhorting, he gets to Rome, but he gets there as a prisoner. And even there, man, while he lived in constant danger of death, he was saving souls for the Lord. He was reaching the royal guards, seeing them, them being saved. He was spreading the, the work of Christ. It was going into, you know, uh, Caesar's palace. On top of that, Paul had influenced many young men to follow his example. And he encouraged them to focus on evangelizing and pastoring and teaching young men like Timothy and Titus and, and several others. You know, when I minister or I share with the young people at, at the church where I pastor, I encourage them to look 
at Paul if you want to know how to be a young leader. Not many of those out there tonight who, you know, they, they do all these you know, really unbiblical things and they, they do things to draw people and to be cool and everything. I go, look at Paul. Paul preached the gospel to them. He taught them the scriptures. And he wanted them to follow his example. On top of these things, Paul had done many miracles. Paul had healed the lame. He'd ca- he had cast out demons. He healed people uh, with fevers and he healed the sick. He raised the dead. He himself, man, he suffered great hardships for the Lord Jesus Christ. But he never complained. He suffered those hardships with, with, with joy in his heart and a song in his mouth. Paul had been beaten. He had been whipped, shipwrecked, hungry, thirsty, cold. Imprisoned, stoned, attacked by mobs, criticized, mocked, and so many other things. And and again, he says here in verse 12, not that I have already attained and already perfected. Think of that. What Paul has said. And, And if this is what Paul thought, now in our eyes, I mean, he's achieved a lot. But in his eyes, he says, no, man, I haven't, I haven't gotten there yet. I haven't gotten to the place where Christ wants me to be. If Paul says what he said here, where in the world do we stand? And I think, you know, I was looking, I said, man, if, if I had achieved all that in such a short time, I'd say, that's, that, man, I've done great. Man, I'm just going to cruise. Now, I, I mean, I, you know, Paul did probably more than, than any man, you know, uh, in comparison in their lifetime. But this is what Paul had done in his short lifetime. So if he could say that, man, what can we say about, you know, our work for Christ? Paul felt like, man, I haven't arrived yet. And and he didn't dare, you know, rest on what he had already done. In other words, he said, I know what, I've done so much, I'm just going to, you know, take it easy. Paul was looking at things realistically. He was saying, you know what, the work of evangelism, it's barely gotten started. In other words, compared what had to be done, what was left to be done, he says, man, I have so much more to do. Look at the second part of verse 12. Again, he said, not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Now here, when we hear Paul speaking, he's speaking as an athlete. Paul is saying, I'm running a race. But he says, man, I haven't reached the finish line yet. The race isn't over. And I'm pressing on. And he says, I have my eyes on getting a hold of why Jesus got a hold of me. And the words press on or or to follow after. He's doing this with the same zeal that he had when he was persecuting the church. He persecuted the church with great zeal in trying to stamp out Christianity. But he says, I'm pressing here towards that finish line. I'm pressing for that goal. He says, and I'm going to do it with the same zeal. I want to spread Christianity with the same zeal that I use to stamp out Christianity. I want to reach the world for Jesus Christ. And he had a, a, a consuming desire to do that. 
He wanted to get a hold of Jesus Christ for the reason that Jesus Christ had gotten a hold of him. Verse 13. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Now, when Paul was writing these words, Paul wrote this at the end of his life. Paul had written many letters giving inspiring thoughts about, you know, spiritual truth. He wrote about the, the, he gave the loftiest views of Jesus Christ and he wrote what it took to live the Christian life and what it took to grow the church. And those letters, in those letters, Paul recorded the heart and the soul of the faith. And yet Paul was saying here, man, I don't think I have grasped all that there is to grasp. He says, I haven't gotten there yet. Next part of verse 13, he says, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Paul said, you know, whatever it is I've accomplished, that's history. It's behind me. It's the past. Now, thank God for it. I thank God, you know, that he used me. And I thank God for what, what God used me for and what I've accomplished. But, but that's history. Paul had reached two continents for Jesus Christ. But what about those continents still left undiscovered? What about those that lived there that needed to know Jesus Christ? He wanted to reach them for the Lord. Paul had gotten to Rome. After he got to Rome now, he wanted to go to Spain. Because he knew beyond Spain there were a lot of unevangelized people. A lot of places that needed to hear the gospel. There was still a lot of land that needed to be evangelized for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying the job isn't done yet. He said, man, I'm just getting started. And Paul decided. One thing I'm going to do. Forget that which is behind. I'm going to move on now as if. I had done nothing. Paul's plan now was to put the past behind him. He was going to focus his eyes on those areas that needed to be reached for Jesus Christ. When running a race, if you've ever been in track, you're told, don't look around. Don't look from side to side. Don't look behind you to see how how close the the, the, the next runner is. Because we lose focus. And we may trip or fall or, and, you know, and, and we're out of the race. Paul set his sights on new land, new territories for Jesus Christ. He fixed his eyes on the prize, on the finish line. You see, there's no prize this side of the finish line. Until we get to that finish line, there's no prize. He said one thing I do, and we need to become one thing people, focused, committed. Paul focused all of his energy on the one goal that he had set for himself. And nothing was going to distract him. We always have to remember, and I think this is what Paul was saying, it's not about how far I've gone, but how far I still have to go. You know, if I'm running running a half a mile and I and I've, you know, run three quarters of that half mile, you know, I can't go, man, look how far I've gone. It means nothing is how far I still have to go. 
And that's what Paul is saying here. Verse 14. He says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, in pressing towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, this is for those who endure. In other words, the prize speaks of those who endure. I'm not going to get a prize unless I finish the race. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 22, he who endures to the end will be saved. Now, enduring does not save us. Enduring is evidence that a person is truly committed to Jesus Christ. And all through these verses here, Paul is seeing himself as a man running a, uh, running a race. And if you if you and I'm sure you have in the Olympics in the past, you know, in, in the when they're running a race and they're in that track and they're heading for that tape at the finish line. Look at them closely. Their head manages leaning. Sometimes I think they're going to fall forward because their head is so fall forward because they want to be the first ones across the tape. Their body is straining to reach that goal line. I mean, every breath is becoming harder and harder and shorter and shorter. Their whole being is being exerted, is being stretched to the limit so that they can win the prize. But think of the prize they're going to win. Some little, maybe a gold medal or some little hat made with leaves. Man, the goal that we're shooting for is eternal. The Lord Jesus Christ. Man, we should have that same drive that we see those Olympians do to reach that little prize that's going to fade away after a while. Every last bit of Paul's energy, every bit of Paul's will, is being spent, is being focused to win the race. What's the prize? Oh, the upward call of God. Or the high calling of God. Paul wanted that prize. Do we want the prize that bad? That we pour ourselves into the race. That we're charging for that finish line with all that we have because we know the prize is Jesus Christ. Have you ever entered a race or a contest to lose? <laughs> no. We get in the race because we want to win. We want the prize. What was it that motivated Paul so greatly? Jesus Christ. Man, and if he doesn't motivate you, nothing will. That's what drove Paul. That's what held Paul to his commitment, his unswerving, his unrelented race towards the goal line. You see, he saw Jesus. Jesus was the motivation for his undying dedication, for his uncompromising dedication to serving God. Behind every vision of Paul, behind the lands that he saw that still need to be reached for Jesus Christ, though behind those visions, he saw Jesus Christ. Verses 15 and 16. Therefore, notice, in light of what he's just said, as many as are mature have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. 
let us be of the same mind. Now, Paul at this point is making the application to the Philippians and he's making that application to you and I tonight. He wasn't writing this to make himself look good. He wasn't writing this to brag about himself. He was writing this to help stir us up, to help motivate us to win the race, to get into the race. We say, oh man, Paul, that was a good message. Oh wow, that, I've never heard that before. And as Paul's making this application, many times as, as your pastor or whoever's teaching makes the application, we think many times, you know, uh, that, that that's, oh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that. But the thought that, that a sermon might have some personal, practical application, many times doesn't cross our mind. And many times in this Christian race, we're spectators. We're spectators. Many times people look at Christianity as a spectator sport. We sit in our season ticket pews and we cheer everybody else on. Or we put them down. Oh, that was a good message. Or, oh, that stunk. And again, we, we, we think about sermons as maybe some, oh, that was some good information. I can use that information. Boy, that's good to know. Or I can use it to exhort or rebuke or preach to somebody else. But again, it never crosses my mind. God, you're speaking to me. You're trying to inform me. Uh, uh, you know, you're trying to motivate me. Sometimes we don't do anything. We just sit. If you've ever been in the race or you've ever been on the battlefield or you've ever done anything and put your heart, soul and mind into it, every move that you made was being studied. And people will find something to gossip about you. Paul challenged the Philippians. He said, hey, guys, come out of your front row seats. Get into the race. Get into the fight. Now, he said some of them were already doing good and he described those as perfect or mature, which means they, you know, they're, they're, they, they've started the race. Paul encouraged these faithful brethren. He says, be of the same mind as me. In other words, forget about what's already been done. Look ahead, set your, you set your sights on something new. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. But not all the Philippians were mature. He said there in verse 15, some thought otherwise. Many of Paul's contemporaries, they didn't look at Paul the same way we do. Brave, courageous, you know, unswerving, uncompromising, a hero of the faith. To them, he was a nut. He was a fanatic. They didn't like what he stood for. They were afraid of his intelligence. They questioned his theology. They were intimidated by his zeal. They didn't, they, they resented his success. But those, among those who admired Paul, they were blessed by Paul. They thanked God for Paul. 
But many of them were just too busy with their own lives. How many of us are so busy with our own lives that that we don't think about the great things that, that occupied Paul's mind? They didn't see the lost world like Paul did. They didn't see sanctification like Paul did. That it's an everyday process. That every day I'm to, becoming more, to be becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Sanctification is not just a one-time act. That day that I get saved, I'm sanctified. But I'm being sanctified every day as I'm moving towards the prize. That final day, I'm being sanctified. But they didn't see the, the things the way Paul did. They didn't see Jesus like Paul saw Jesus. Now, whether they were mature or they thought otherwise, Paul said, hey, man, I want you to all walk the same walk. I want you to all walk by the same rule. I want you to mind the same thing. Doesn't matter how far we've already come. Let us all run on the same road. Verse 17. Brethren. Join in following, notice, my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Now, Paul was saying, follow my example. Follow what I do. Follow me and, and, and other men who are, are, are you, know, you know, following my example, who are pursuing the same goals I am, follow them. Now, Again, Paul wasn't being a braggart. Paul wasn't trying to make himself look good in front of everybody and boast about, you know, his zeal and his commitment. He wasn't being egotistical. Remember, the Holy Spirit is leading Paul to write this. And the Holy Spirit wanted to use Paul as an example. Now, of course, the greatest example of Jesus Christ, that's taken for granted, but but on a human level. Paul was the ideal Christian. Missionary or, or soul winner, evangelist. Pastor. He was the ideal Bible teacher. And he was a great example of one who practiced the faith. Now, we know that Paul said early on in Romans that in this flesh, dwells not one good thing. So knowing that Paul wrote that, you would think, well, why would Paul say, follow me? Paul would have been unwilling to use himself as an example, I'm sure. But you see, the Holy Spirit overruled what Paul may have wanted to say. This is important to note. True humility... You know, it's not pretending that we don't have gifts that we know we have. And everybody else sees them too. For example, you know, somebody has a good voice. And you go up and say, brother you know, or sister, and you have an awesome voice. Oh, no, I don't. I can't sing. Yet we know they can. We see their gifts. That's not humility. True humility is not putting down what we've done as if they were nothing or they were inferior when we can see, man, that, that's, that's up there. That's a good job. That, that's, a, that's of a high level. 
And to pretend that we can't do something that we can do. Or to pretend that we haven't done something that we have done. That's not humility. It's hypocrisy. Humility is admitting what God has done in our lives. But we give him the glory and the praise for it. I am blessed for what God has allowed me to do as a pastor. But you know what? It wasn't because of me. God, God did everything from start to finish. If anything bad happened, that was Joe. Everything good happened, that was Jesus. Because it says, he's good. He's good. He can't help but do good. Even Jesus said in Matthew five sixteen. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Now, Paul wasn't the only faithful brother. There were others besides Paul. There there were those before Paul and there were those at the time of Paul that we use as examples of the Christian faith and life. And you know what? We need to thank God for every man, woman, and child that, that, that... has been an example and who has motivated us and inspired us to be more like Jesus Christ. To be more sincere, to be more committed, to be more, you know, faithful. Verse 18, Paul says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. By the time Paul got to Philippi, Man, he had already been in so many spiritual battles. He'd already planted a lot of churches in Galatia. And he had seen how fast Satan could attack and mess them up. He saw what happened in Antioch. He had to go to Jerusalem uh, to, to challenge the church there who wanted to Judaize, you know, say they had to be circumcised in order to join the church, in order to be Gentile Christians. He went there to battle that. And it didn't take long for Paul to realize that wherever he went, that Satan wasn't far behind. It didn't take long for him to realize that he would have to warn the babes in Christ, the new converts, that, hey, there's going to be sheep in wool's clothing. There's going to be false brethren. They're going to come. So when he went to Philippi, he warned them. And he was pretty sure that there were a lot of false brethren that would follow him to Philippi. Because, you see, everywhere else that he went, they were there. They tracked them down. They messed with the people. They confused their minds. They taught them false things. They upset the believers there. They caused the divisions. And I remember when we first started in the theater, 1999. It was an exciting time. But it was a new work. And, and boy, those, those false teachers and false brethren, they poured out of the woodwork. And the lady came up to me one time because I was talking you know, about something negative. And she said, oh, Pastor Joe, you, you can't talk negative. You got to only think positive. Well, she was in a positive confession. I told her, well, gosh, I wish Paul would have known that because he prayed three times. And the Lord wouldn't heal him. 
And I said, and I just told her, you know, that, that what you're telling me is not biblical. And so, you know, she left and didn't come back. Had another guy come up and, you know, brand new. He's probably come a couple, two, three weeks. And he says, you know, he says, I've, I've written all of these studies and I've got these pamphlets on Revelation. And, and that's the gift that God has given me. And, and, and I, I want you, would you let me, you know, teach it from the pulpit? I go, man, I don't even know you. We just, you know, we've been here about a month and you want to come. And I says, you know, sit here for a while. Let me see who you are. Let me see, you know, if, if you know, you know, you can, you can, you know, stay here and, and you accept, you know, what we teach and, you know, be, learn, you know, what's going on here. And, um, but he didn't like that and he took off. But you have all, you always had these people come in and wanted to just jump in. But you have to watch out for that. And that's what Paul's saying here, man. They can come in and they can cause divisions. Paul, it says here, he says, man, in 18, that, that he cried for those. There were enemies of Jesus Christ, the cross. I mean, it shows Paul's heart for Jesus Christ. He had a heart like Christ. Paul cried for the enemies of the cross. He cried for those enemies just as much as he cried for the, the harm and the destruction that they did to those that that they, you know, that they influenced. People who make themselves enemies of the cross, man, they're out of reach of the salvation of the cross. They're, they're out of the reach of redemption. And one commentator gave this picture, this scene in the prison cell in Rome as Paul wrote the, uh, verse 18. And, and it, it's, it's a great illustration. I want to share it with you. I can't remember who it was. But it, it, he says, the jailer, the jailer, Chained to this particular man, being Paul, you know, with a patient personality, brilliant analytical mind and a gentle heart and a strong will. The jailer sees tears welling up in, in Paul's eyes, in his prisoner's eyes. And those tears were running down his cheeks. And the jailer tells Paul, cheer up. Things aren't that bad. You're a Roman citizen. And, and one of these days, they're going to let you go. They don't crucify Romans, at least not in Rome. Paul wipes away the tears. He smiles and he looks at the jailer and he says, no, you got me all wrong. I'm not crying for myself. Jailer says, oh, well, it must be for your friends or your wife and kids. Paul, you'll be free soon. You'll be with them soon. You'll see. Cheer up. Everything's going to be okay, Paul. Paul says, no, I'm not crying for my family and friends. I'm crying for my enemies. He says, well, Paul, you know what? They're going to get what's coming to them real soon. You'll see. We all know you're innocent, Paul. No, you're wrong, my friend. I'm not crying out of resentment. I'm crying because of them. I'm crying. I'm not crying because of them. I'm crying for them. Look at verse 19a. Here's why. Their end is destruction. Notice that. That's why he's crying for them. He knows that the enemies of the cross are going to end up in destruction. That's why Paul cried for the false brethren. He knew they were lost. He knew that they were going to go to hell. And even though they, they messed with Paul and they were enemies of the cross, they did damage to the church, they did damage to the saints because they were going to hell. That didn't make him feel any better. That didn't make him feel good. Even know that, knowing that they had done all this harm to him and, and to the churches and to the people. 
They were on the road to destruction. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and there are many who go by it. You see, Paul was thinking about these men. He was thinking about them spending eternity in hell. Man, do we have that kind of a heart for people that don't know the Lord? Do we weep for them? Do we, does our heart break for them like Paul's heart did? That's the heart of Christ. So much that he gave his life for those so that they wouldn't end up in hell. Second part of verse 19. He says, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. These brother, these, these false brethren were ruled by their flesh, their eyes, their flesh, the world, the sensual. They made themselves teachers. They came up with their own message and they claimed, oh, Ours is more spiritual than Paul's. You got to come. You, you got to come and hear what we have to say. You know, we've we reached a higher spiritual level than Paul. And Paul showed that their religion and their self-righteousness and their so-called respect, it was nothing more than a superficial self-righteousness and self-indulgence. Materialism. Like false brothers always do, they see themselves differently than everybody else. They saw themselves as being passionate and, you know, they wanted to protect the truth. So they wanted to go out and, and talk to those that Paul had talked to and set them straight. They said that they were spreading the true gospel. They were willing to do whatever it takes to, to go far and wide to go to these that Paul had preached to and set them straight. There are still many false brethren today. Verse 20, Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. The word citizenship here refers to a seat of, to the seat of government in the country where we are citizens and where we have certain rights and responsibilities. Now, citizenship was, was highly valued in an empire that was made up mostly of slaves and freed men. Paul enjoyed the rare privilege of being a Roman citizen, yet he was more proud of being a citizen of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven as well. And here's the wonderful thing about that citizenship. It is open to anyone. It is open to anyone, to all who will make Jesus Christ their king, their savior and their Lord. We belong to the upper class of heaven where our Lord sits and where he reigns at the right hand of the Father. We have a responsibility. Remember this, in this world, we have a responsibility to never, never, never disgrace our homeland in heaven. In our homeland, in heaven, that's our true homeland. There's no sickness there. There's no death. There's no pain. There's no sorrow. There's no violence. They don't, they don't threaten. They won't be found on the streets of heaven. There's no hospitals there. There's no prisons. There's no retirement homes. 
There will be no more tears. No more heavy sighs will be heard there. Just songs of praise. Songs of praise. And will be served by the one who sits or by angels ordered by the one who sits on the throne to minister to those who have inherited salvation. Right now, we are pilgrims on this earth. We're just traveling through. We're just strangers in this land. This is a foreign land to us. This world is not our final home. We're here to do a work. We've been saved and and, and put here to be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. And think of it, every night we go to bed, we're one day closer to our heavenly home. We're to never forget, even for a second, where our home is. Heaven. That beautiful land. That beautiful place with its beautiful king. Will. Will. Influence. The way we dress. Our attitude. It will help determine what we say. Where we go. How we act. What pleasures we allow in our life. How we use our talents. What we do with our money. How we treat other people. And the amount of time that we spend in worship, service, Bible study, and prayer. Second part of verse 20. From which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The great hope for believers is the coming of the Lord Jesus. The coming of the Lord. That's what Paul's talking about here, whether it's the rapture of the church or whether he comes back to the world at the end of the tribulation period. For the unbeliever, the coming of Christ is going to be a horror story. It's going to be a horrible event for the unbeliever. Oh, but for the Christian, man, the rapture is going to be a wonderful event, a wonderful, blessed hope that we have. Verse 21 as we close. Speaking of Jesus, verse 20, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Oh, King James says we have a vile body. Here it's translated a lowly body. Why? Because it's weak. It's limited. Paul calls it, you know, a tent. In 2 Corinthians 5. That's easily blown down because it's weak. It's a slave to to the lusts of this world. To the cravings of our flesh. It craves sin. And one day this body is going back to the dust. The 14 elements where it was made from. But this vile body is going to be changed one day. And it's going to be transfigured. Our bodies are going to be made just like his. Conformed to his. It's going to be made like his glorious body. Corinthians says, in the twinkling of an eye. The God who made us 
I mean, how easy will it be to him for him to make us again? It says in verse 21, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Unbelief weeps at death. So that's why Paul said, he says, I, I want you to know what happens to your loved ones when you die so that you won't weep as those who have no hope. But unbelief has no hope. All they have to look forward to is the thud of dirt falling on their coffin. But you see, faith looks at the almighty creator. And he sees the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The one who had victory over death. Unbelief just sees a dead body. With no hope. But again, faith sees a risen Lord, victorious over death, the Almighty Christ. That's what Paul said. I want to see, I want to know the power of his resurrection. Think of it the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that dwells in you and me. Therefore, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can't is, a, is not a biblical concept. I can do all things is a biblical concept. Jesus Christ is our guarantee of what we believe. He's the guarantee. We look at him and say, hey, he said it. I believe it. He proved it. He rose from the dead. And so will we. Those that know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this evening to thank you for your love and your mercy. Father, we thank you for what you are for to us, Lord, and what you do for us, God. We thank you so much, God. And, and thanks is, is so little. Our vocabulary is so little to try to describe. It's so unworthy in trying to describe who you are and our appreciation for you, Lord. But the best way that we can thank you and to show our thanks is how we live for you. And maybe you're here tonight and you might be or have been an enemy of the cross for whatever reason. Maybe past experiences in a church with other Christians that didn't exactly live the Christ-like life. Maybe because of your own preconceived notions and ideas about Christ. All the things this, is, this world says about Christ have influenced you. The important thing is, is that you listen to Christ. What he said. 
And let him reveal himself to you. Let him prove himself to you. And the only way you can do that is by giving yourself to him. Turning your life over to him. And we'd like to give you an opportunity to do that tonight. As Paul wept for those that were walking down the road to destruction. It breaks our heart too because we know there's another road that you can walk. Jesus said it's very narrow. It's very narrow, but you know what? It's wide enough for all who want to go there. As the worship team leads us in a song, this is your time. And if God has spoken to your heart and you're tired of being an enemy of the cross, because you realize it's it's gotten you nowhere. Then as we worship at any time during the song, if you want to receive Christ, you just lift up your hand and put it back down again and I'll acknowledge it. And at the end of the song, right where you are, we'll say a simple prayer of faith. So as we worship, you lift up your hand if you want to receive Christ.